0: If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment.
1: Hi everyone, hope you're doing all right. There are many parts in the Bible that when you read them today, they seem very out of step with contemporary culture. This passage from James chapter 2 is not one of them. If you are from a sort of Western, millennial kind of perspective, you read passages like the one that we've just heard, and this seems very on-brand. Because what it's speaking against is partiality, different people being treated different because of their status, because of their wealth. And that type of corruption, that type of inequality, is what gets people angry. You know, dare I say it, when there's one rule for one people and one rule for other people, and that inequality, that gets people annoyed, angry, wanting to speak out against it, maybe in a way that James does here. I mean, the idea that a church, where James is speaking to churches, and it's almost comical. If you, you know, the idea that here at our church, that we would have different seats for different types of people, you know, someone who's rich comes in and says, all oh, right, you, you you sit here, we'll look after you really well. And, and then someone who's homeless comes in and says, oh, right, we don't want you anywhere near the front. You can sit at the back if you really want to, but we don't really want you here. It's almost laughable that any church would operate like that. So ingrained is this sense of uh, equality in our society, and so... The danger when we read a passage like this is think, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, we don't show partiality to people. What he's speaking against is nothing that's relevant to us, really. And we just pat ourselves on the back and we move on to the next passage. But James wants to tell us something that is important and is something that's relevant to us. Firstly, I think as we unpack this passage, what we'll see is we're not as impartial as uh, we might think we are. But also, James wants to lift our attention to something greater, as he does the right, w- right the way through uh, this letter. Again and again, he's wanting people to consider the eternal realities, the eternal perspective, because that's really going to not just help us to treat people better, but actually transform the way we think about life, the way that we think about God, the way we think about ourselves, and the way we think about other people. It's something profound he is getting at. And this is why we call this series Resilient and what it's really all about. It's not just about a few tips to get uh, through, navigate the tricky things in life, whether they be trials or different pressures or you know, how to deal with different types of people. It's a more holistic transforming view of life. What James wants to get at again and again is to help people understand Christianity is not just theoretical. It's transformative. He's appealing to people not to just act like everyone else acts, to say, no, you're part of something much greater, much more glorious. And you see that in the language that he uses in this passage. He talks about Jesus and he says, the Lord of glory. He talks about poor people and he says they're heirs of the kingdom. He talks about if you want to obey what scripture says, he's talking about the royal law. He's wanting to lift heads to see, no, there's a whole transformative way of thinking about life. That relationship with Jesus transforms us from the inside out. He wants us to see that this stuff he's talking about is not incidental, it's radical. It's a Christian community, a gospel-shaped community that is way different to just the nuts and bolts of how to treat people. I want us to unpack that in the time that we've got today. And so the way we're going to do that, we're going to reflect on a few different people and things. We're going to reflect on this context. What, what's the context that James is speaking to? I want us to reflect on our society as well. I want us to reflect on ourselves, and I also want us to reflect on Christ. Firstly... Let's reflect on the context. You know, this if James is having to teach these people not to treat rich people and poor people like in a different way, this sounds like it's quite a backwards discriminatory culture that's going on in the first century here. When we read this... We might tend to think the way it maps onto our society is like if, say, a celebrity came in, you know, Beyonce or Prince William or something like that came into church one day. And we think, okay, the gospel tells me not to treat them any differently from anywhere else. So we think that, well, I I just play it cool. (laughs) I won't give them any attention. I'll just, oh, OK, Beyonce's here. Okay, not a big deal. And we think that is what this is getting at. In that imagined scenario, there's nothing at stake for us personally. Actually, the way we treat certain people, say in a church on a Sunday, doesn't actually make any practical difference to our lives. And that's partly because we don't live in a world of patronage. The first century was very different. You've got to get your mind into that understanding a little bit. You know, imagine that you were in a context and a culture where, say say for example, you you didn't have work. You're out of work. You had no money, you had no job, and you're looking week to week to try and get by to feed your family or whatever. There's no welfare state to fall back on. And you're here at church on Sunday. And then the person who walks in the door is a rich person, but also they're the the big employer. You know they are going to employ people for work that week. Then, James' words to say, no, don't treat them any differently than anywhere else. That's a whole different thing. Because suddenly, your interaction, there's something at stake there. Your livelihood potentially depends on whether you find favor with this person. And so in that context, to treat the person who sweeps the streets the same as the person who has the power and potential to write your paycheck each week, to treat them the same, is actually an immense step of faith. Actually, that's something that's quite radical. To bear the cost of that, to, to, to take a risk to trust God with that, is a huge step of faith. And so I want us to understand that because then the application for us is more realistic. The question is, where do we bear a cost to be consistently God-honoring in the way that we treat other people? You know, for example, if you're uh, in the workplace or in a business context, you know, are you going to turn down a client because of something immoral that they do? That's, that's a decision where you, it actually costs you something. You know, are you going to challenge a friend or your boss when they say, or'll oh, do something that's wrong? Are you going to take that risk to say, no, actually, that's not right because you want to honour God, you want to do what is right. And you're taking a risk in that. There's a cost to you. Is that, is that the same thing? Is that impartiality? Yeah, I think it is partiality because it's about how we treat people and also... What it exposes is we tend to overlook sin in other people when it's in our interest to do so. We don't treat them as, we're quick to judge other people when it costs us nothing to do so. We'll criticize them, we'll say that they're wrong, we'll say they shouldn't do that. We'll speak out against, but are we going to speak out against wrongness here when there's something at stake for us? No, let's not fool ourselves. We can't say that we believe in impartiality or uh, we're totally against discrimination unless we're willing to bear that cost. That is what James is getting at here. It takes faith to do that, and we are prone to partiality. Secondly, I want us to reflect on our society as well. Because as I've said, Western millennials... Love loved this passage, because there is a, a championing of social justice, which is a very good thing in our society. Let me be clear on that. But many people have grown up in a Western context where equal value is just, it's just a given. And if you notice the uh, current anti-discrimination movement, it's all to do with the fair and equal treatment of people. The equality of people is not really up for debate because it's it seems it is a given. We say it's unfair because just be that person and people are equal and therefore should be treated equal. For someone, no one comes back on that argument and says, well, actually, those people aren't equal. Actually, the rich people, actually they're, they're more important, so they should get preferential treatment. <laughs> I mean, some people might think that, but they're not even they're not gonna say that because socially. In the society, we've we've said, no, people are equal. That's accepted. But globally and historically, that is not always the case. So my question is, where does that come from? If we take that as a given that people are equal, where did that idea come from? Historically, that's not always been the case. Globally, it's not the case. The Bible affirms the equality and value, intrinsic value of people on the first page. Straight out of the gate, creation of people. God says, I'm making people, men, women, all types of people in my image and therefore bestows equal value, dignity, worth to them intrinsically from the first page. In our society that we live in now, in our city, we don't realize that not just... Ideas like the one that James is, but actually these verses that we're reading from James have shaped Western culture. Have shaped Western culture. You look at other parts of the world, you could look at through history, other, where Christianity has not been the dominant influence. In other religions, it's quite clear that there is not the same sense of equality. Other parts of the world, it's clear men and women are not treated and not regarded as equal. In fact, some religions have a hierarchical view of what society should be like. There's different classes of people, and that's mandated by the religion. And not only other religions are different to this, but also a secular worldview is also different. You know, in in a city like ours, that secular worldview is probably pervasive. Many people come from that point of view. God probably doesn't exist. But on this point, I want to say there's a great inconsistency between secular worldview and this idea of equality. Because if we have a secular worldview, God probably doesn't exist, then where does the equality come from? Because if, if we lean on that, we lean on it sort of, well, people, were are a product of just an evolutionary process. But wait a minute, an evolutionary process... That's all about how people are not equal, how life is not equal, how animals struggle against one another for dominance, for there is a hierarchy. It's all about survival of the fittest, the strongest prey on the weak. Surely if we've been consistent with that kind of secular uh, evolutionary worldview, we would say, no, actually people, people are different. But there's a great inconsistency when we try and champion, no, evolution, that's how we understand people, but also people are equal. No, actually, some atheists who are trying to be logically consistent on this point, they actually come to really horrifying conclusions in the pursuit of being consistent and being true to a secular atheistic worldview. An example would be the Australian philosopher Peter Singer, who would say, you know, people are not special. Human life is not special, we're just one animal species amongst many. And so he would say, well, now animals have the same rights and dignity and worth and value as people. And I might say, okay, oh great, animal rights, that's that's a positive thing. Probably not many people are going to challenge that. But when he's been trying to be consistent, and say, well, and we're going to say animals are just as important as an adult human being. But then in the same logic, newborn babies... The the disabled, the elderly and infirm don't have the same rights and are not as valuable as adult healthy human beings because their value has not come from outside, it's come from their usefulness in society. And he comes to that, and it's it's horrible, it's a horrible place to land, but he's trying to be consistent with this secular worldview where God doesn't... The Bible tells us something different. God bestows value and dignity. And only with a Creator God can you be consistent in your understanding of people being equal. So I want to tell you today, whenever, whether whether you're a Christian, whether you're a secular, any other religion, whenever you balk at injustice, whenever your blood boils, when you see the unfair treatment of people, Whenever you see the rich and powerful oppressing the poor and disempowered and you think that's not right, what you are feeling is a Christian impulse, a Christian instinct. That is teaching you something about the creator God who made you. Thirdly, I want us to reflect on ourselves as well. And although many of us would say we you know, instinctively reject discrimination, let's be careful, because we're still prone to partiality. You know, we say we don't judge people, but someone walks into church, or walks into your workplace, or the person who serves you at the supermarket, you see what they look like, you see the way they dress, how they talk, how they present themselves, what they say, you make judgments. I make judgments, come to conclusions. Our partiality or our judgment, is this my kind of person or not my kind of person? We don't say it, but it's it's internal. No, it's no less real. We've got to be honest, when it comes to this thing of impartiality and not judging others, we all, including myself, We tend to prioritize, befriend, gravitate towards people who are like us. You could say that's an instinctive thing. You will tend to befriend people who are similar education level to you, similar age to you, probably similar ethnic background to you, similar interests, that type of thing. Because it's familiar, it's because what we're used to, because what we know, it's easier to do that. But what happens is that does, in a community, creates cliques, it creates suspicion, it creates a lack of understanding between people. And that happens, well, I could say that can happen in churches, or I could just be honest and say that does happen in our church. And we drift into that. We, we drift into that and that is why James is speaking against it because we drift into it. James is saying, no, no, love your neighbor. He's speaking to that Christian community and he needs to speak to our Christian community as well because he said, if, if you don't think about it, if you're not intentional, you'll miss this. And that's why James quotes Jesus where he says, love your neighbor. And even in verse 8, he's, James is saying, if you really fulfill it, He's kind of getting at we can fool ourselves to think oh yeah we 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 love our neighbors we have a, a church a community where we we don't treat people differently we we we're, we're good at loving because what we and we think of that in a, in a superficial way we think perhaps you know well someone comes into our church on a sunday someone who's rich and wealthy and powerful and we and we the way we respond is oh hello well we want to welcome them it's, do you want a cup of coffee and then someone who is poor, homeless, whatever, comes in and we say, hey, hey, welcome, you know, you know, do you want a cup of coffee? And we think, oh, we've treated them the same. We've not been impartial. We've treated them the same. We fulfilled loving our neighbor. It's like, well, James wants us to really think about that. When Jesus said, love your neighbor, what did he go on to describe? To help people understand what he was getting at, he told The story of the Good Samaritan. (laughs) The The Good Samaritan is the man who paid a cost in order to love and serve and bless and help someone who was radically different to him. There was cost involved. To love our neighbor is to take on a cost on ourselves in order to love. Show no partiality it's not ignoring the differences between us. It's actually actively crossing the dividing lines in order to love people who are different than you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's easy to love people who are like us, but that's not what Jesus and James are getting at. They say, you've got to love people who are different. You've got to go out and bear a cost And love people who it's not easy to love or you wouldn't naturally gravitate towards. And that's why he's getting at this. If you're young, love and serve and befriend people who are old. If you are rich, love the poor. If you are poor, love those who are rich. Don't despise them, love them. If you're from in one ethnicity, love people who are in a different ethnicity to you. And the truth is that's not easy. Because in conversation we, we might not know what to say or there can be misunderstandings because we're coming from two different backgrounds. Or if you're young and old and you have different interests and we say different words and it's, it's not easy to do that. There's misunderstandings but if we're going to be gospel people, if we're going to be a gospel church, if we're going to be shaped by what James is teaching us here, we say, I'm going to sacrifice my comfort. I'm going to step into that. I'm going to t- take my time to be intentional in this in order to love others. Sacrifice self in order to build a community that shapes the gospel. It's about being intentional with our friendships. It's about being intentional about who we're inviting into our home and welcoming in a, in a real way. <laughs> who we're having meals with. That's the the gospel community. And even in this day and age, this church should be a beacon of love and friendship across different types of people group. You know, this church should be a place that people come in and say, this is different here. This doesn't happen elsewhere when you've got older people who are just friends with people who are young. When you've got people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, and they actually like each other, get on, have taken time to know each other and befriend each other and be a family together. When you're crossing dividing lines of middle class and working class, rich and poor, everything in between, there's actual intentionality there. Let's not fool ourselves. We as a church, we've got work to do. And in one sense, we'll never crack this. We'll never have arrived at this. This teaching of James is continually relevant to us because what he's saying is to live in the gospel requires ongoing gospel intentionality because what he's getting at is not just treating people a little bit differently. It's being radical in following Christ and being like him. And so let us focus on Christ and reflect on him last of all. Perhaps already the Holy Spirit has brought some level of conviction and challenge to us. Maybe you're feeling that at this point. And James, in his letter, certainly wants to do that. That's his intention, to bring conviction that brings about change. And that's what he's doing in the end, the last part of this passage, where he's putting partiality in amongst other sins, Adultery and murder. Because he, he, he doesn't want us to think, well, this is an issue, but it's not that much of an issue. No, he's saying, this is sin. This is anti-gospel. This is not reflecting our Savior, Jesus Christ, if we act like this. It's just as much sin as other sins are. And we, we tend to do that. We tend to think, well, that's really wrong. But what I do... <laughs> And the internal things and the attitudes, it's not that much of a big deal. James says, don't deceive yourself. Don't fool yourself. Now, sin is sin. So we might be in a place of conviction. But let me me say this as well. Because we live in an age of, as I've said, of anti-discrimination. And there's so many positive things about that. But listen, without Christ shaping that you're going to end up in one of two places. And we see this in our society right now. When we, when we have a society that pushes social justice really strongly, but it's without Christ, what happens is people are either just left feeling entirely guilty and condemned. And we see that. Oh, I'm, I'm complicit in this. I'm, I'm condemned. And they live in guilt. They feel constantly guilty. That's on the one hand. Or on the other hand, we think, well, no, I'm not like other people. The racist, the discriminatory people, they're over there and I'm over here. I think the right things. I do the right things. I'm in the right camp and they're the wrong camp. We either feel guilty or we feel proud. We feel self-righteous. And we see that as well. We are on the right side of history. You're not. Without Christ, we're going to end up in guilt or we're going to end up In pride, but James says you're different. If you're a Christian, you're different. You've been released from that. He uses this curious phrase, verse twelve: "You're under the law of liberty." What does that mean? Because law is like what we say is oppressive, but law of liberty is about freedom. How how does that make sense? It makes sense in Jesus. Jesus is the only way that this makes sense. Let me say this. Do you know that everything that James is saying here in terms of his instruction actually already appears in the Bible right the way back in Leviticus 19? Don't be impartial. Don't treat the poor badly. Don't oppress people. Don't be dishonest. Don't be unjust. And even love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19, verse 18. It's It's all there. God has always wanted his people to live justly, to treat each other right, and to follow his way of love. But the problem is that we lack the power to do it. Without Christ, we end up feeling guilty and condemned. We we, we can't do enough. Or we feel proud and self-righteous, which is just as offensive to God. We're chained to both. Chained to sin, chained to self-righteousness, but Christ has come to bring freedom, to release us from those chains. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, came to live in our world and live a perfect life, to humble the proud. You think you're right. You think you've done good. You think you've treated people as they should be. You've not done that as well as Jesus has. You've missed the mark. If you think, if you're If you you compare yourself to other people, compare yourself to Jesus, that will humble you very quickly. But also, he lived that perfect life, but he died a sinner's death. Died on the cross to take the guilt of you and me, so that we can be free from it. He takes it on himself. So that whether we're chained to sin and guilt or chained to pride and self-righteousness, He frees us from that. So we're bound to Him now. And that changes everything. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we see God. It changes the way we see other people. It changes the way we see ourselves. When you see Christ as your Savior, you see other people as precious to God. And you see yourself as a conduit of his blessing. And that's the eternal perspective that James wants to, us to be in. You see, I could go out and say to you, well, you know, go on out there and love your neighbor. But you'll, you won't ever truly love your neighbor until you realize that God has chosen you and saved you and loved you and blessed you in Christ to be a conduit of His blessing. You see, this is not just about treating people a little bit better. This is about seeing our lives through the Gospel lens that we don't treat people as they deserve. We treat people according to the love of Christ. Why? Because Christ has not treated me and you the way we deserve. We have received Christ's love freely as a gift. Undeserved, takes our guilt, takes our pride, takes it on himself and gives us love and grace and mercy. And when we receive that, we truly can love others. In this area of partiality, you have sinned in this area. I have sinned in this area. We've judged others, but Christ, the Lord of glory, has been judged for you. On the cross, he's exchanged the riches of heaven for the poverty of the cross, the poverty of your guilt, of your sin, so that you can enjoy the riches of his grace and mercy. Be forgiven, be freed, free to love, free to extend his grace to others. Let's go and be doers of the word. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the precious gift of Jesus. And Lord, I want to pray as we hear your word right now, bring this gospel freedom to us. Take off guilt, take off pride, and fill us with your love that we might be free to love others as you would have us love them. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.